welcome to the second episode of the Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of the Forensic Psychiatry Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and the McMaster University Division of Forensic Psychiatry, in collaboration with the Multimedia and Entertainment Department at Milwaukee College. Today, we will have a conversation regarding the forensic psychiatry system specifically focusing on not criminally responsible. Our host again today is Brandon Sundstrom, Knowledge Translation Specialist. Our guest today is Dr. Gary Shamovitz, Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McMaster University and Head of the Forensic Psychiatry Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. Welcome, Gary, back to the Hitting the Hammer podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Brandon. Nice to be here. Today, we're going to go through the topic of not criminally responsible. I have a question. What exactly it is, um, if you could explain a bit about Section 16 and the elements involved. So, so not criminally responsible is, is a major area in the area of forensic psychiatrists, and it's certainly a topic that I think Canadians uh, should be or are, are aware of. I think people are probably more familiar with the idea of not guilty by reason of insanity, which is an American description of very much the same thing that we would call not criminally responsible. So this is a, um, a legal designation. It's, it's in our criminal code, the Canadian Criminal Code. And it comes about when um, a person um, commits a crime and because of their mental disorder – the courts find that that person is not criminally responsible for the act. So perhaps a, not, not the most elegant way of describing it, not criminally responsible, but basically the idea is, and the concept comes from this space where if if someone commits an act because of a mental disorder, it's a choice that they didn't make and that they should somehow be treated differently from someone like a criminal who commits an act and they're held responsible for their um, their their crime. What are the elements involved in in not criminally responsible when when it's brought up that uh, you have to do a not criminally responsible assessment? What are the elements you're looking for? Right. So so first of all, the the, the issue has to be raised. So someone commits a crime and somebody, um, usually the person, the defense counsel, but sometimes the crown attorney. Uh, is concerned that this person, when they committed the when they committed the crime, so it's very important. It's when they committed their crime, not today, that they were acting under the influence of a mental disorder, depriving them of a number of um, concepts around willfulness. So they they were acting because of their mental disorder. So this issue gets raised, and then they ask, um, usually a forensic psychiatrist, to see the person and make an assessment. So the elements in the code. Um, to Section 16 of the Criminal Code of Canada. Every area has a sort of a, an index. So this mm-hmm. is Section 16 of the Criminal Code. And it says that if suf- somebody was suffering from a mental disorder at the time that they committed the offense, that either deprived them of the ability to appreciate the nature and quality of their actions or omission, or if they knew this was wrong at the time, they then may be found not criminally responsible. So what ends up happening is that we, um, the hospital or the forensic psychiatry team or psychiatrist, uh, we will see the person, try and understand about whether they had an illness, try and understand what was going on in their mind when they committed these, uh, this offense, and then present that to the courts. Okay, so who who in the courts would, would bring this up? And why would they bring it up? Is it just the person's displaying unusual behavior, or is there something that kind of triggers them? So, so I think I think probably it's worth going just back to to try and understand where this thing came from. And I think uh, advanced societies or societies generally, there, there was this idea that 
you had to be responsible for your actions. And if you were responsible for your actions you, and it was a crime, you would have to pay a debt to society. Generally, this was prison or jail. Sometimes you had to do other things. Um, now, people recognized that there were some people who, when they committed the crimes, were clearly not well and, and different from when they were normally. And, and this idea that perhaps we shouldn't hold those people accountable to the same degree it's if someone chose to commit or break the law. That's kind of the background, and this has got this goes back uh, thousands of years. And and you know, as as time goes on, it gets art articulated a little bit better. So, what we try and do is, if somebody has a major mental disorder that might deprive them of their willfulness, that triggers usually a defense counsel to say, you know, my client clearly was unwell when he committed this offense. Sometimes the police reports will say this person was unwell. The Crown Attorney might even notice this. And then they ask for essentially an investigation into their mental status at the time they committed the offense. Okay, so um, you've done the assessment. You find that an individual is not criminally responsible for the crime. Uh, what happens to the individual? So, so just uh, even to back up some more. Sure. So we, we um, as a forensic psychiatrist, I'll see the person... Um, I'll make a, a, a determination to the best of my ability that at the time they committed the offense, they either didn't know what they were doing or didn't know it was wrong. Right? So I will then write a report and then offer that to the court because the decision about NCR is not mine to make. All I'll say is give an opinion whether I think they meet the criteria, but it's actually a legal decision. It's not a medical decision. But it's it's based uh, on the is it, it the balance of probability. So fifty one percent or above, or right, right, is right. that correct? So, right, right. So of course, um, you know, and, and this is probably unfortunate for members of the public is when your physician makes a diagnosis, he or she's doing this to their me to a medical certainty, which is not a hundred percent certain. So I, I will offer an opinion, and the courts will make a decision on the balance of probabilities. So you probably know that if somebody commits a crime to get convicted, it's beyond reasonable doubt, which is kind of up there in the high 90s. But here, my opinion is based on 51%, and the courts will make a decision if it's more likely than not the person met the criteria. So it's a different threshold for deciding if somebody meets NCR criteria. Does it happen sometimes that judges don't agree with your opinion? Um, how often does well, that happen? I, I like to say it never happens, but, uh, <laughs> sure, but unfortunately, sure. well, not unfortunately, it, it, I think sometimes when these things are close, um, the courts may or may not agree. So the judge ultimately makes it, he's, he or she is the trier of the facts. So the two sides, the Crown Attorney will present her opinion and the defense will present her opinion and then the judge will make a determination. So, and they'll ask me questions and I, I'm not really invested one way or the other and then the, the courts make its decision. Sometimes, and that's often when the, the offenses are fairly serious, um, there may be two experts. So defense may, might have an expert and defense might have an expert, and they both present their opinion. So clearly, um, sometimes they're on the same side, but sometimes the opinions may differ and only one person is going to be correct. So kind of like um, the Luca Magnata case, would that be kind of one of these instances where the psychiatrist thought that the, the person was psychotic and had schizophrenia and they uh, recommended NCR, and then that was turned down. By the right. So, so, so the public will be aware of some of these very high-profile cases, and you mentioned one of these um, high-profile cases. That, that's not the majority of them, but absolutely where clearly the consequences for the individual um, are, are 
quite serious. I mean, if you get convicted of the sorts of crimes that Luke Magnotto was alleged to have committed or committed, um, you're going to go away for a long time. And if it was, if you committed it because you had schizophrenia, not because you chose to do that, um, I think in our society we would say you may still need to be detained, but we will also treat you. So uh, he'd be one of those cases where both sides will retain experts, and and they may come up with different perspectives. But I've also been on some high-profile cases where both experts agreed, and that tends to be more common nowadays. When an individual enters the uh, not criminally responsible forensic psychiatric system, uh, what is the average stay for that individual? Is it a life sentence? Is it a is it a is there a time limit to stays? So, um, as you as I alluded to, um, the majority of people commit crimes that are not particularly serious and not like um, homicides, manslaughter. Many of them are um, very low-level assaults, so they may be property crimes. Yeah, I and, read in the, the National Trajectory Project uh, back in 2015 that serious violent crime was only 9% of of the not criminally responsible. Um, the very serious uh, violent crime reoffense is only 0.6%. So it, it really is a small um, portion of all the not criminally responsible cases, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So what, what are the majority of cases that come through not criminally responsible through the forensic system? Well, as, as you just alluded, they, they tend to be not the, the most serious. And, and you can raise the issue of NCR pretty much on any type of offense, even very minor offenses. So even low summary cases, if they go choose to go summarily. Right. So, so the problem for many of the accused is that, that if you go into the forensic system, there's no determination of how long you could be in the system. So your offense could be one where you might serve a few days or a month if you go to jail. But if you end up in the forensic system, you could be in for years or decades. So you have to make a decision about which way you're going to go. Obviously, if you go NCR for a, if you've been found NCR for a homicide, where you're going to be incarcerated for, for years or decades, the NCR system might be not that different. But for the minor offenses, you could be in the forensic system for much, much longer. What kind of things does it depend on? Well, so that's the, the interesting thing. So to get into the forensic system, as I mentioned, you're in the system because your mental illness drove the offense. So not for the mental illness, you wouldn't have committed the offense. No, those criteria I went through. To get out of the forensic system, you have to be deemed not a significant risk to the safety of the public. So you come in the one door, which is these are the things that happened when the offense occurred, but you don't leave the forensic system until you're not a significant risk. And for some people who are risky as individuals, they're in the forensic system for maybe forever. You are listening to the second episode of Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton in collaboration with Mohawk College. I wanted to talk about um, some of the um, more famous cases. Um, Again, serious violent crime is only a small portion of it, but it seems like those are the only ones that are reported in the media. Is there any kind of famous cases that have made you really curious and interested about about the circumstances and things that happened? Well, as as you as you quite rightly point out, um, 
it's the famous cases that make the media. But I think that's the same with any crime. It's not just the NCR. So, so, so stigma comes into play quite, quite, quite a lot. And there is this perception that if you commit a heinous crime and you're found not criminally responsible, somehow you get off. And sometimes the media actually reports it that way. And yes, it's true, you may not end up in a, in a prison, but you end up in a forensic system. And clearly in, forensics, in the forensic system, even serious offenses, you spend a lot of time there. You don't generally get released. But there are obviously cases, and I think you're maybe referring to um, Vince Lee. There was the f um, very well-known case, a very horrific uh, offense that took place in Manitoba. Um, and and I think they got a lot of airplay. Um, I think the media is mixed reporting on that. And I can certainly understand how people who were victimized in, in that particular offense would have a lot of difficulty understanding um, the role that mental illness played. And it's certainly our, our job is, as mental health professionals to try and talk about that. But in no way does that take away from the um, the trauma that the victims experience and 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 feeling somehow that the their loved one um, you know was lost and and somebody did not pay for their uh, pay for the crime. Yeah, it, it must be difficult for um, the victims sometimes because we hear of the progress of of famous cases. So Vincent Lee is now named Will Baker. Um, he lives in the community under an order now. It must be really difficult for families to understand uh, how, how the system works. Right, and, and, and I, you know, I, I've never been in that situation on the other side of this. Um, and so um, it's very difficult for us to talk about how it would be if I was in the role in the place of where the victims, the families um, are victims and how I would react. Um, there are, however, um, people who's, who's, who've lost people because of um, an NCR accused and have taken another perspective. So two people that come to mind. Um, one is Laurie Triana Antidormi, um, who lost her young son, Zachary, to a woman with a psychotic disorder. And Laurie, who's a clinical psychologist, uh, has, um, I wouldn't say made it to life work, but she's certainly... Um, devoted a lot of her life to talking about NCR, about the forensic system. And I'd say she's, um, she's a great proponent for understanding criminal mental illness, its relationship to violence, NCR, forgiveness. Um, you're also probably aware of those movies, the movies that have been made recently um, by John Kastner about some offenses that took place um, in eastern Ontario. And the Beauvier's... Um, family um, have spoken up um, about uh, understanding and forgiveness and their journey in moving from anger at the perpetrator to beginning to understand and even befriending um, the perpetrator of the person that nearly killed their daughter. What I really like about that story is uh, Mr. Bouvier is now a member of the Ontario Review Board, correct? That's correct. So I think that gives a, a really um, great perspective on the board um, that someone that's been involved through a, through a journey of forensic psychiatry, I think that's really valuable to the Ontario Review Board. Well, I, and I think I, I'd agree with you that, yeah. that certainly um, the board needs to bring and brings to, to the table not only the perspective of the psychiatrists and the lawyers who deal with the weighty matters of significant risk and, and what happens to the person, but there is a public person there. These are members of the public 
who uh, whose voice also needs to be heard. I think you're also talking about the review board, which just for our listeners, once somebody gets found not criminally responsible, if they do, they then fall under this under a review board system. And this board meets annually and decides what sort of privileges, if any, the person might access over the next year. And it's a five-person panel in Ontario, two lawyers and two clinicians, and also the public voice, which is really important to be heard. Absolutely. I read somewhere that most cases, individuals have come in contact with the psychiatric system, uh, whether it be in an um, in inpatient admission or just um, uh, an, as an outpatient uh, before they committed a crime. So does this does this give us a chance to kind of look at things and if if we improve services and improve access will that prevent crime in the future i think that's a i mean it's a, it's a quick question but a very weighty one um i don't think it's reasonable to expect that we will ever get rid of crime and even though um i'd like to see it uh, mental illness has been with us for millennia um i think what we can do is make sure that Canadians um, have access to mental health treatment when they need to and for as long as they need to and with enough resources to keep them well. And sadly, having, I mean, I've been in this business for um, decades, um, sit on the board as well. And I would say that um, there are many, there are, a, there are a group of people, not insignificant group of people, who, in my opinion, if they had received treatment in time, had access to treatment the offenses that occurred would not have occurred. So people have knocked on the door and for all sorts of reasons um, have not been brought in, so it was not received treatment, been admitted. And I think there's work we can do and I think we as mental health professionals um, and members of the public, we need to improve mental health treatment. We know it's not as good as it should be and I believe it's in, in my opinion that if we were to do that, um, some of this unnecessary criminal behavior would dissipate. Gary, in the province of Ontario, where do people receive forensic psychiatric services? Where do they go? So so I think we're very, very lucky in the province of Ontario that that our government and our community, our society has recognized the need um, to provide services for people who have been found not criminally responsible. People in our forensic system are people who have been considered NCR, but also a significant risk to the safety of the public. So there are nine forensic facilities around our province in all the major centres. Um, so they range from St. Thomas, London to Thunder Bay, North Bay, Penetanguishene, uh, where there's a maximum secure facility, Toronto, Whitby, Kingston, and Brockville, Ottawa, as well as here in Hamilton. So in these institutions, we're charged with looking, assessing people but also looking after people in the forensic system. So we're very lucky in Ontario that that we have all these services uh, and these hospitals. There are around 16 to 1,800 people in the forensic system. Um, a large group of that reside in the community, even being monitored in the community. And the rest are in various levels of security, from maximum, which is a penetang machine, to medium and minimum security in the other facilities. So in those facilities, we in the hospitals that are forensic hospitals, We'll look after those individuals, we'll treat them, we'll get them well, but we'll also manage risk to the public. So in other words, nobody gets privileges unless we feel that these people are managed in terms of risk and that the public would be safe. Okay, so once a year the Ontario Review Board 
um, they'll decide one out of three possible dispositions, correct? Um, one is a detention order, one is a conditional order, and one is an absolute discharge. Right, so that, that's correct. So if the board finds that people no longer pose a significant risk to the safety of the public, they then get absolutely released. It's like being found not guilty. Basically, you can walk out, you're on your own. Um, and that basically implies that this person is not going to reoffend or that they're going to get treatment and somebody else is going to look after them. They're one of three dispositions. If the court finds that somebody is not a significant threat to the safety of the public, the board, they will release them absolutely. Like a court being finding somebody not guilty, they're free to go. And there's this assumption that they're not going to reoffend and they'll be getting treatment on their own. So the board makes that decision, and these are people who will, who've got other treatment teams, who are not using drugs or alcohol, that sort of thing. They may make an order, if the person's a significant threat, that they get detained in hospital, or they're detained in a specific hospital with a range of privileges, including into the community, but that may be quite restrictive. They may also discharge them with conditions, in other words, allow them to live in the community with some expectation of coming back, seeing people in the hospital, taking their medications, and so on. It might... We might include residents in a particular um, location as well. Gary, uh, thanks for coming back and joining us. Uh, Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Brendan, thanks. Great to be here again. You have listened to the Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and the Forensic Psychiatry Division of McMaster University in collaboration with Mohawk College. The co-editors are Sebastian Pratt and Gary Shamovitz. The production manager is Brandon Sundstrom. The production editing team is Corey Davies and Tom McKay from the Mohawk College Multimedia and Entertainment Department. You can also visit the website of our journal's partner, the International Journal of Risk and Recovery at mulpress.mcmaster.ca slash IJRR. Journal published in collaboration with McMaster University Library Press. I'm Corey Davies. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time on Hitting the Hammer.